What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Personology is a production of iHeartRadio. Marilyn Monroe, born Norma Jean Mortensen, was one of the greatest female screen legends of the golden age of Hollywood. An actress, model, and singer, she changed attitudes towards sexuality in the 1950s and 60s, eventually emerging into a major icon of popular culture. My guest today is Charles Casillo, the author of two books about Marilyn Monroe, The Marilyn Diaries, a fictional recreation of her lost diary, and Marilyn Monroe, The Private Life of a Public Icon, a biography that speaks to the many mysteries surrounding the star. Marilyn Monroe doesn't get more iconic in terms of Hollywood movie starlet, sex symbol, of the last century and still of great interest today. But she was born Norma Jean Mortensen on June 1st, 1926 in Los Angeles to Gladys Pearl Baker, who was originally Gladys Monroe, who was actually a poor Midwestern girl whose family came to California as many families did. And she was actually not her first child. So let's talk a little bit about her her family of origin, Gladys being her mother. But Gladys was originally married at age 15 to 24-year-old John Newton Baker. And that was not a good marriage. No, um, he was abusive. And they did have a, a daughter. And Gladys Baker had emotional problems too. But with the information that's available, we don't know if it was her emotional problems or if it was his abusiveness or a combination of the two that made the marriage not work. So actually, there was a child who didn't live that long, Robert, I think a son, and Bernice, who actually Marilyn didn't even learn about as a half-sibling until she was 12 and met as an adult, but really had very little to do with. And it is important to note what emotional problems existed because when one's mother 
has mental illness, basically. It greatly impacts their child. And so we do know that there were probably already mental health issues afoot, although they didn't present until later in terms of hospitalization in Gladys. But maybe even important for the audience to understand that mental illness as a family history means that one is genetically more likely to experience, it doesn't mean you definitely will, but you are more likely to experience mental illness. And not only did Gladys go on to be diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, but her mother reportedly had severe depressions, including postpartum depression, and even a great grandfather on the mother's side who actually committed suicide, died by suicide. So it's important to know there's, there's a real family history of, at the very least, affective disorder, or depressions, and even schizophrenia. That is important to know. But this man who uh, did abuse Gladys and for whom she divorced and left was not actually Marilyn's father. So let's talk about the actual father, Martin Edward Mortensen, who was Marilyn Monroe, Norma Jean's father. Gladys left her first two children, Bernice and the son, with the first husband. And then she tried to pull herself together. She was working as a film cutter in Hollywood. And Mortensen actually isn't Marilyn Monroe's father, Norman Jean's father. That was as a result of an affair that she had. The name of her father was Charles Stanley Gifford. It was a brief affair. Gladys hoped that she would be able to marry him, but he did not want to marry her. So after she became pregnant, he ended the relationship. And Marilyn, Norma Jean, was actually born out of wedlock. So I always say like she kind of started her life on the wrong side of the tracks or being an unaccepted member of society because in the 1920s, 1926, when Norma Jean was born, to be illegitimate was like you're starting off on the worst thing that you could be. You know, you have a black stain on it. But Gladys, who was, you know, working as a film cutter, was not mentally fit to take care of young Norma Jean. And she put her into foster care. And actually, it's really sad. I mean, she she was really struggling financially to make ends meet, right? As you said, she was working as a film cutter. And she tried initially, it does sound like she tried to keep Norma Jean and be a fit mother. She tried to, basically, they got multiple people lived in a house together, she and her daughter and others. And she tried in the early years to keep Norma Jean, but she she just couldn't really do it. The story of that is uh, after a few days, her mother realized that she couldn't take care of her. It was going to just be too much. So she, when Norma Jean was only a few days old, she went over to stay with her first foster parents. And then when she turned five, Gladys felt that she was in a better kind of place in her life and that she was, she had these like ideas. I'm going to get us a house. I'm going to buy a piano. I'm going to be a mom. I'm going to make Norma Jean um, give her a life that she really, really deserves. But Again, the pressure only after a very, very, very short time, she couldn't take it. Like she would go to work, she would drop Norma Jean off at the movie theaters, like the Grama's Chinese Theater, and just leave her there for the whole day. And that was her introduction to the movies. And she would just watch, she'd start in the morning and then she would watch the films one after another, after another. And then she would come home and act them out. 
But she actually witnessed her mother after just several months. Well, a couple of important things happened during um, her stay with her mom. Number one, her mom had a picture of Norma Jean's real dad, Charles Stanley Gifford, and she would always show Norma Jean a picture of him, this handsome guy in a, wearing a fedora hat, and she would say, this is your real father. And because up until that time, Norma Jean's life had been so unhappy and she felt so isolated and she felt so much in need of rescuing, she put all her hopes in her father that this is a guy like kind of like a, a, a knight in shining armor type thing. He'll come someday and he'll take me away from all of this and he'll give me the home that I want. So that just comes in later when like most of her relationships were she was searching to find her father again. So that was the, the first important thing. The second important thing was that she actually saw her mother be taken out by the men in the white coats and straitjacketed and, and taken away. So she, she witnessed that. And even though obviously it was because her mother was seriously psychiatrically ill and needed to be hospitalized, it's still for a child, for a young child, which she was like eight, it still feels like an abandonment. Whether your mother means to or not is really not the point, but to be so young and to be removed from your mother, who you're longing for and have just been with, you know, in more recent times would be, you know, is a trauma and is an abandonment, especially as you point out in light of not having a present father. And in addition, the family that she lived with, the the sort of foster parents, this is Albert and Ida Bolander, who were evangelical Christians and tried to make a nice home. But another thing that seems to come up about Norma Jean is sadly uh, the question of, of having been sexually abused. And it's not clear to me from what I can find whether there was concern that that happened in one of the foster home settings or one of the houses that she lived in where there were other people present or whether that didn't really happen until she stayed with the friend of Gladys, basically, once Gladys was really institutionalized and unable to come out, Grace Goddard and her husband, Doc Goddard, whether that that is what happened there. Well, it it wasn't in her first years with the devoutly religious family, but that did scar her, as we see in like some of her scribblings. She never really kept a diary, but she would scribble. It, the first thing was that um, she was taught that loving movies or entertainment or singing anything other than religious songs was sinful and bad, and that the human body was bad. And I think one of the things that happened is that Norma Jean had a, a, another foster brother who that family actually adopted. They never adopted her, but they were very, very close. They looked alike, and they used to be called the twins. And Ida walked in on them playing naked or whatever, experimenting like little babies, you know, just looking at each other or something. And she was livid and she was Norma Jean was punished and told that this is sinful and you'll burn in hell forever. And it it did have an effect on her forever because she eventually she started dreaming about being naked in church and walking down the aisle and everyone looking at her and admiring her because she was so beautiful. And I think that's a very, very, very important and interesting fact about a child that started having that dream as a result of being told that it was wrong. Her subconscious was telling her, no, the human body is good. The human body is right. And I want people to accept that in me. So it's interesting that in these early years, she had these experiences that on the one hand told her, or let's say informed her future feelings that, you know, showing yourself as a beautiful 
person, as a beautiful human, as a beautiful woman, uh, physically is okay. And in fact, she, for the times, was really disinhibited in some ways. And yet, we then see later in her career and wonder why behaviors, which we'll talk about later, that insinuate low self-esteem, shame, even guilt, and this perfectionism, very hard on herself. And, you know, you have to think about these early experiences where, on the one hand, she was admired for being very beautiful, even as a child, a beautiful child. Her mother was purportedly very beautiful. And at the same time, as you're pointing out, having these experiences where she's being told to be admired or to show yourself is sinful because you would be bad in the eyes of God. It started an enormous amount of conflicts in her because she's, you know, don't forget she was in Los Angeles where beauty was one of the most important commodities a person could have. And, you know, people were telling her she was beautiful. And then on the other hand, she was getting signals from the person that was taking care of her saying that it was wrong to be looked at and almost wrong to be, you know, considered beautiful. So it, it started very early planting all these conflicting ideas of beauty and acceptance and all of those kinds of things with these foster parents. And really from somewhere between the ages of eight and 12, she had this moving around from an orphanage, which albeit was considered a very good orphanage, but an orphanage is still an orphanage. You know, you don't have a family home, a family life. It's kind of like being in a school all the time or, you know, it's an institution. And then the family of Grace Goddard and her husband, which apparently she liked better, certainly. But did something happen in that home? I think that's that's been a question, whether some sexual impropriety happened in that home, because at that time, she also started to develop the stutter that she had, uh, a shyness and a stutter. But actually, the way she told the story, it was before the first time she was sexually abused. She was around seven. It was shortly after her mother was institutionalized. She was shuffled into a foster home, and it was in that foster home, whose name of the people there we don't know, but she, it was um, a woman who was running a boarding house. And she was staying with this woman who was running a boarding house. And one of the tenants lured her into his room and sexually abused her and then gave her a nickel and told her not to tell anyone. And when she tried to tell the foster mom, and she usually called them aunt, so I, I don't know if it was like Aunt Louise or whatever it was, but she told him what he did, and she smacked her and said, he's one of my best tenants, don't you dare say anything about Mr. So-and-so. So, again, these deep-seated problems were being planted in her from a very early age because this woman was also religious, and when, when they were at service, she saw this guy at the service praying fervently, you know, about righteousness and all those other things. And here she was carrying this secret that he abused her, and no one would believe her anyway. But then she was shuffled. She recounts so many foster homes. It was like she went to different schools. She was uprooted. She would get comfortable in one place. And her mother's friend, Grace Goddard, always would tell her, oh, you're so beautiful. You're going to be an actress. She would try to take her, but... Her Grace's life was number one, you know, So, and she was trying to be an actress herself, and she was very theatrical. She met a guy who was much younger. His name was Doc. And when they, they briefly took her in, and that's it said that this guy Doc abused her too. But she told people various things throughout her life, but 
it was more than just two people. It was, you know, cause the, in those days, foster care, it wasn't really supervised the way that it would eventually become. You were placed into a family, a young, pretty child with these men who looked at her. Like I said, she's a damaged commodity. No one wants her. She doesn't belong to anyone. I could do what I, I could do what I want with her. And then in the end, she learned that if that happened to her, if she was victimized, it was her fault. I mean, that was right. That was the message from the women in the home who, I mean, she's, she's wishing for a mother and, and, and she gets women who basically say either, I don't want to know, or I don't want to hear about it, or it's your fault. And it's your fault for being seductive or evil in some way, which is really tr- terribly traumatic. She ultimately in school she is considered a pretty average student, maybe like a mediocre student, except that she is considered a good writer. She writes for the newspaper. And it's important to, you know, she, of course, for most of her career was really portrayed as dumb, as unintelligent. And you might be an average student, meaning not a superstar student, but that's certainly, she was not a poor student. She was not a poor student and she did have this aptitude for writing. And it's important to understand that because even though those are the parts she portrayed in the way that she ended up directing her career, we have a lot of evidence that she was a reasonably intelligent person. She loved poetry. She loved learning. She always said, I'm not an intellectual, but I admire intellectual people. She was very hungry for knowledge and bettering her mind, which is why she gravitated towards, you know, people like Arthur Miller and and very great intellectuals or renowned people. She always wanted to better herself. I mean, she loved Carl Sandburg. She had a great friendship with Carl Sandburg. But I think that one of the reasons that maybe she was you know, in in school writing. Well, first of all, I think she wasn't a good student, not because she was, I think that when you come from a situation like her, it's more about survival. You're worried about surviving from day to day, getting through the day, not being made fun of. She was very ashamed of, you know, not having a family, not belonging to anyone. And as you said, she did start stuttering. She was made fun of. She was very tall for her age. They used to call her string bean. Norma Jean, the human being, was one of the things that they called her. So she was kind of, I, I, I wouldn't say she was bullied. She was she was separate. So writing was also something that she could, you know, you can do that by yourself. It's not a team thing. So I think that may be one of the reasons why she excelled at reading. And uh, and you bring up a great point. Try being a great student when you essentially are in a different home all the time or in an orphanage and don't have an ongoing parent, don't actually have a parent. Today, you know, you that would be, you could imagine how difficult that would be. And she did continue on nonetheless in school until the age of 16, when Doc, and that's who she was living with, the, uh, the Goddard, got relocated his job to West Virginia. When she was 15, they, they found out that they were going to be relocating. And there was an elderly woman who was getting too old that they tried, you know, they were going to keep her with her. Uh, it was actually someone that Norma Jean loved very much. She called her Aunt Anna, but she couldn't take her. She couldn't move with the Goddards because the Doc had children of his own. So it they was, couldn't it, afford it. They couldn't really afford to, to take her. Yeah. So it became either she was going to go back into an orphanage or she got married. So Grace, being the resourceful woman that she was, started looking around for a potential husband for the 15 year old. And she literally went to the boy next door, asked him to take her out. They got along and his mother said it would be really nice if you married her so she doesn't have to go back to the orphanage. And so they waited until she was 16. And two weeks after she was 16 years old, they married. 
Wow. So this was James Doherty, right? I think he was a, a factory worker. Basically, at that point, he was like 21 years old. So older than her, not old. Handsome, by all accounts, a nice guy. <laughs> Perfectly nice person. <laughs> she called him daddy, by the way. And that's a, a recurring oh. thing that always, oh. she always called her husband's daddy. Okay, well, that you don't need a psychoanalyst to explain right. the edible meaning of that to you. Yes. Uh, so, yes, she was in search of a father and romanticizing a father who would rescue her. And in this sense, James Dougherty was rescuing her from going back to the orphanage that he was going to supposedly provide her stability and someone to take care of her. And that she belonged. was... Mm -hmm. It was the first time in her life she belonged to someone. So it was in the first, I would say, months, maybe to the first year, she was content. She was content. His expectation was that she would be a homemaker. And so she quit high school. She dropped out of high school, which was, was not that unusual for the times, but still for someone who wanted to learn and better herself, not, not exactly the path you would think she would take, but she was 16 and she really had no options. So she said she was happy. And then about a year in, he joins the Merchant Marines. They are stations at Santa Catalina Island. Things are fine, let's say fine, stable. But then in the next year, he is shipped out to the Pacific for two years. So he's gone and she's alone and it's the war and she needs to work and make money. And so she moves in with his parents and works at the radio plane company, the, the munitions factory, as many young women did. She worked in the parachute, like assembly line, packing the parachutes. Which was actually a, what a lot of young women did during wartime for the wartime efforts and to support themselves. And this is where she is first sort of spotted, let's say, by a photographer who comes to take pictures really for the, for the wartime efforts to, you know, here are the women yeah, supporting you. to boost morale and show what women were doing for the war effort. And she was a, a pretty teenager, really. And so he asked her to pose. And when he got the photos, he said, you could be a professional model. You really have something. And that started the wheels turning in her because it goes back to that beautiful thing. Like, you know, the, the, an interesting thing is like when she went from 11 to 12, a very interesting thing happened to her in her life. People started paying attention to her when she was 12 because her body developed. She became a pretty girl. She would walk to school and guys would beat the horn. So for her, that was like, it's really kind of the first time she was accepted. So I think it became important to her if beauty is the thing that's going to get me attention and make people like me, then I'm going to be as beautiful as I can be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so it's like an antidote to abandonment, right? Yeah. Your father never wanted you at all and never showed up. Your mother marginally seem to and is incapacitated and and in a shameful way. I mean, in those days, to be in a mental institution was a total mark of shame. And so she, from being completely unwanted and abandoned, you would definitely desperately be looking for any way to be accepted and maybe even more importantly, admired, to be admired. So here she was 
naturally very beautiful and was admired. Yeah. And so this was her ticket into a life of being more accepted and more just part of the world. Um, One interesting thing about her father that I should say is like when she first married and she was feeling secure with her first husband, Jim Doherty, she called her father. Her mother had by then told her what his name was. And she called him and she said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad he's Baker's little girl. And, And he froze and said, call my lawyer and hung up. So that was another rejection for her. Absolutely. Especially if you've been fantasizing that one day, right, he'll come and and be be thrilled to have you. But the interesting thing is that David Conover, the photographer who took these pictures, they didn't get picked up and used for the purpose that they were were shot. She was not one of the ones selected to be used for the wartime purposes. He just on the side said to her, but you really have something. And I personally would be very happy to take pictures of you for modeling purposes and for my friends who are also in this business to do that. And I just say that as there were a lot of risks at that time and at, at, at all times, I suppose, for young women to feel like they have to put themselves in risky positions to make it, you know? And she, who had no one protecting her, was lucky in the sense that nothing terrible happened, but- That she ever talked about. I'm pretty sure terrible things happened to her by the wolves, as she came to call them. I mean, they'd already happened to her as a child. And so her ability to, you know, her dealing with it, so to speak, or not being shocked by it is probably true. But it sounds like this early experience, at least, was really a man saying, hey, you really, you really could be a model and I'm going to treat you like a model. Yes. And he introduced her to the owner of a modeling agency, the Blue Book Modeling Agency, this woman called Emmeline Snively great name. And she went to see her with photos that Conover had taken of her. And and she looked at them and said, well, she saw dollar signs. She said, we can, you know, you're, you're the girl next door and we can make a lot of money on you. And she, one important thing that she said is, but you know, blondes make a lot more money. So Norma Jean became a blonde and she worked a lot. Let's take a quick break here. We'll be back in a moment. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. 
with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're talking 1945 now. She becomes Jean Norman. She stops calling herself Norma Jean. So she's Jean Norman, and she makes her hair straighter and blonde. And also that particular head of the modeling agency said that she had never seen a young woman work as hard as as Norma Jean. She really worked hard at this and actually ultimately over this time period was on like 33 covers. I mean, she was successful, at least for, let's say, the genre, which admittedly were probably a lot of men's magazines, et cetera. In those days, pinups, th- that kind of stuff, bathing suits, and uh, shorts and, you know, it, it was like they had magazines like that were called like Peak, Peekaboo and things like that. And she did a lot of negligee stuff and bathing suit stuff. So she she was avidly working something that apparently her husband, James, was not too happy about, not what he envisioned as his homemaker. And he wanted her to stop. So that became a problem, A, because at this point, she basically felt the later part of their marriage was, I think she put it, incredibly boring. They were just, they were just a mismatch and she was bored by him. And then in addition, he was, you know, increasingly pressuring her to stop. And in fact, really at a time when not only did she not want to stop what she was doing, but she was really having aspirations for turning this into something more, like being an actress. While he was gone... She changed her name. She became Marilyn Monroe and he came back and she said, my new name is Marilyn Monroe. And it was it just, you know, he did, it wasn't what he bargained for. He didn't marry into that. He didn't marry into a career woman or an aspiring actress. It was, you know, Norma Jean was this lonely little girl, basically, that he was going to take care of and they were going to have children and raise a family. And so um, they separated. You know, it's interesting because at this juncture, just her saying, I'm out. And I'm going to be more and I'm going to be an actress is really interesting in the face of all of the trauma that she suffered, that she really, at this juncture at least, shows her willingness to stand up to a man and say no and aspire to, even in the face of a lot of uncertainty and unknowns, that she had the resilience. I guess that's what I'm saying. It's it's amazing that, you know, with a severely mentally ill and institutionalized mother, and I think that she later does talk about her fears that she might have what her mother had and end up the same way. And despite those fears and despite the, uh, the recurrent trauma, that she really has a lot of resilience and strength. 
an extraordinary ambition. And I think what helped her is that now she was starting to be surrounded by people that believed in her. As much as she was rejected like any up-and-coming actor or actress, a model, you know, there was lots of rejections, there was always someone from this point on who really saw something different and special in her. At this point, she had started to be photographed by this photographer named Andre Didienes, and he took some of the most remarkable photos of her while she was transitioning from Norma Jean into Marilyn Monroe. And he was successful. And people, friends would go to his apartment and there'd be, the walls would be covered with photos of Norma Jean. And they'd look at her and say, she's very pretty, but she's not that special. I don't know what you, he saw something in her because he dealt with beautiful women all the time. That's the kind of photography he did, but he saw something in her. And I think that those kinds of people, she had a knack for finding them and surrounding herself with the men and women who believed in her. And that gave her a little extra encouragement. And just, she had really no confidence at all. So she had to rely on other people's confidence to kind of get her through. And people like that gave her a little bit more of a backbone to stand up for herself and to go on. So it's, it's interesting. She sort of found like mothers and fathers all over the place to nurture her and be proud of her and put her forward. And as you said, she, but she did have some sort of charisma and ability to connect, um, even though she's described as shy. She is described by others as a shy child. It's not that she's outgoing or bubbly, but yet she had some ability to be charismatic enough to draw in certain people. And people were very attracted. See, it was like she was, I always say she was like a cocktail. It was a combination of this vulnerability and sensitivity, along with her physical allure, along with her ambition, along with her, she was very witty when she chose to be, and a hunger to know more. She was very interested. It all combined together to form this charisma that really hasn't been duplicated since. But, and, and the other thing that's very important is she was very shy. But something happened when she was in front of a camera. The shyness just dropped. She had a love affair with the camera and it loved her back. So it's interesting how many actors and actresses and models and people who do public work, basically, are actually introverted people who need their private time, their quiet time. That's how they recharge themselves. It's energy expansion to have to, unlike for extroverts who who get their energy from being with people, introverts, right, get their energy from their alone time. And being an introvert doesn't mean that you don't find pleasure from doing something that would be public in front of other people that actually is still doing your own thing. It's not, you know, acting isn't, the kind of relating that a social interaction is. It's different. But what it does speak to is the pleasure that she did get via her exhibitionistic impulses, which which we all have. We all have some amount of enjoying showing ourselves and looking the other side, voyeurism, look, exhibitionism, voyeurism. So people often have some enjoyment of both those things, but she had a good dollop, right? The being seen and being appreciated being looked at, that was something that was was clearly enjoyable for her. And as you said, she lit up doing it in a certain kind of way that others found very appealing. It was during this time that 
She moves into acting. She signs with 20th Century Fox, but they give her a six-month contract because really Zanuck does not think much of her, but he doesn't want someone else to sign her. So he signs her, but for this short term, but this is where she becomes Marilyn Monroe, Monroe being basically her mother's maiden name and choosing that. And she gets divorced. (laughs) So she's now a free agent and she's off, but she really has her first number of years she doesn't make much of an impression as an actress. They dropped her after the six-month option. She only did a bit part where it was no uh, no way to judge her. I mean, she's seen in the distance. She has one line, which is, hello. So they didn't they didn't have any belief in her and respect her, for her. And she was dropped after the six-month option. So then she was sort of like, like many other, a struggling actor going on auditions and being rejected and looking for that break. And that's what she was like. It was a, it was a tough, that this was a tough period for her because, you know, she was a successful model, but sometimes there was dry spells and she couldn't pay the rent or, you know, and there were often times when she felt very alone. She was looking for um, those substitutes, that you, the family substitutes, the mom substitute, the dad substitute, the lover substitute, you know, so she was floundering. It was a dark, you know, she went through a lot of dark periods and there was a dark period in, in between her modeling and before she started, you know, really acting, working as an actress. Even though these were hard periods, we don't have reports really that I'm aware of, of periods of depression that incapacitate her at this stage of her life. It was hard, but she kept working. She kept functioning. You don't hear about drug abuse in this period of her life or, you know, seeking out substances to, you know, dull the pain. She seems to be functioning and you don't, that doesn't really seem to present till later in her life, which is interesting because of course, this on the one hand seems like a very insecure time, but on the other hand, I suppose she's not being judged in the harsh way that later she will be judged, that the she's not yet presented with the possibility of feeling the imposter syndrome that she later, you know, a sort of, I'm supposed to be larger than life, but I don't feel like that on the inside that she later experiences. But she's signed by William Morris Agency in, in 49. She meets Johnny Hyde, with whom she ends up having a sexual relationship with and he apparently proposes marriage, but she does not accept. But he he champions her. He really champions her. If if there wasn't a Johnny Hyde, there wouldn't be a Marilyn Monroe. He was a very powerful man in the industry. He he worked with all the big stars, and they met at a New Year's Eve party. And he saw her from across the room. And he's one of those people that I was talking about that recognized something in her that was extraordinary. And he went up to her and he said, I work with all the big stars: Lana Turner, Rita Hayworth, Betty Grable. And none of them have what you have. And he became very, very, very more than smitten, um, maybe less than obsessed, or maybe I think he did. She did become his obsession. He started calling the movie studios and saying, I've got this girl and you've got to see her. And it's Marilyn Monroe. And they would say, oh, we, we saw her. You know, we, we we saw and he would say, look at her again. You know, there's really some, there's something there. And he started getting her bit parts, but important parts, parts that showcased her and, you know, the the abilities that she had at the time. And he did leave his family to be with her, but she wouldn't marry him because she felt it was dishonest because she wasn't, she loved him, but she wasn't in love with him in that way. So although she would have been a very rich woman if she married him, because he would tell her, Marilyn, I'm not going to live long because he had heart, very severe heart problems. And you will be a very, very, very wealthy woman and marry me. And she she said, no, I, I just can't. She lived with him. They 
were a couple and all those things, but she would not marry him. Wow. And she would have been a very rich woman because after basically like weeks after she signed this seven-year contract that he helped her get with with 20th Century Fox, he died of a heart attack. I mean, he he died shortly thereafter. Did he, in fact, do, is there actual evidence that he, you know, sort of saw her through getting some plastic surgery? There is evidence because um, through the years, you know, many decades later, her the, the plastic surgeon was interviewed, and he he gave away some of the things. And this is and this is the story that the plastic surgeon told when she was starting to get parts. She was very, you know, it's, it's, it, she's always a dichotomy because part of her was she was alive in the camera, but the other part of her was that she was insecure. And Johnny Hyde thought that getting something done to her face would give her more confidence. He didn't think that she needed it. So what the, the doctors ended up doing is um, trimming a little bit off the front of her nose. People, there's this rumor going around that Marilyn Monroe had her face redone. Um, no, there's enough photos of her as Norma Jean, when she was already a very successful model, and she had made a, a very low-budget film called Ladies of the Chorus before she met Johnny Hyde, and it, that's as close as you could see Norma Jean in action with no plastic surgery, just now, and she's very lovely. She's a very lovely person. Doesn't There's nothing of Marilyn Monroe in that, particularly in that film. Um, she's an ingenue, which she never played. She said, I, I wasn't born to play an ingenue. Later on, she said that. So she did have this minor plastic surgery on her nose, and then later on she had some cartilage injected in her chin to make her chin more pronounced. But in those days, it was, it was cartilage and it dissolved, so it was just, that wasn't even a permanent thing. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like today is filler or yes. whatever is, yeah, exactly. is the equivalent, equivalent <laughs> of that. Okay. Yes. So interesting. So he, it's not that he thought she needed it; it's, it's that he he. Did the he encouraged her to do this to feel even more confident? Yeah, or to, to, get, to, to give her an extra, an extra, yeah, more beautiful, more confident. She then does go on. I mean, he dies, and she is working for 20th Century Fox. This is when she really starts doing films. She's really doing films, and she's really doing romances. She really is. She gets involved with Kazan and Peter Lawford and Yule Brenner. And ultimately, Joe DiMaggio. But she's really in Hollywood at that point, uh, working, but not getting admired really for her acting roles. She's sort of there. 20th Century Fox had no respect um, in her acting talent at all. They didn't believe in her. And they wouldn't have given her a contract if it wasn't for Johnny Hyde's belief and, and, you know, kind of pressuring them to do it. His power got her. And so they were throwing her away in these little bit parts. What started to get her the attention, interestingly, was the cheesecake photos that she kept posing for. And they were going to the newspapers. But even you know, the studio didn't recognize her. But like she had done while Johnny Hyde was still alive, he got her a role in this film called The Asphalt Jungle. And it was a, 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 a gangster film and lots of important actors. In it. And she had a bit part, a couple of scenes. And it was an exciting film and people loved it. But they walked out of the theater saying, who's the blonde? Who's that blonde? So as Marilyn said, it's always like, if anybody ever made me a star, it was the public. No man, no 
film studio, no photographer. It's the public that made me a star because they're the ones that recognized her. And then film studios are money-making machines. So they're like, well, if we can make money on her, let's use her more. So that's really basically how our career, they didn't, um, like they did with so many stars in those days, like sort of sponsor them and groom them for stardom. No, Marilyn was grooming herself during those first couple of years under contract. And really initially what she groomed herself to be was the biggest sex symbol that she just, she emerged as the, as a gossip columnist referred to her in 1952, the it girl, but the it girl in the form of a sex symbol, a, a, a blonde bombshell. And that's, that's how she groomed herself. It, it goes to what I was saying earlier about when she started getting attention for being beautiful. It was like, if this is what's going to do it, if this is what's going to make people notice me and love me, because it was all about love. You know, she didn't have love. Now it's, she's being loved. She's being a more, then I am going to be the sexiest, the most beautiful, the most desirable. And she basically threw her attributes and her ambition and canniness. She did it. She did it. At the same time that she did do it and was doing it, on set, she started to develop this reputation of being, quote, difficult to work with. And, you know, you, there are two sides to this coin. You could say, what, what was up that she, she would come late or not show up or not fully know her lines? And when you try to understand behavior, you know, why would somebody who's trying to make it that much and has been working that hard to get there do do those things? And you have to also then acknowledge that the fear of screwing up, of not being viewed well enough, of the perfectionism involved, the low self-esteem that she was struggling with, the high expectations that she was facing, and that one would develop a lot of anxiety about being on set. It was all about fear. It wasn't, you know, and co-workers have said this about her, many of, of her co-workers, that it wasn't about being a diva or a power trip or anything like that. She was fearful of the camera because at this point she was saying, okay, now I want to be loved and I want to be admired and I want people to want me. This is the moment that I'm going to be judged on. These few, th this scene here that we're filming today is going to be my make or break things. So it was enormously intimidating for her to um, face the camera because she, and then when she started to get notoriety, it became, each time it became more difficult because she had, now she had to live up to something. Exactly. And in addition, there are a lot of reports, or she reported really being often sort of bullied even, or, you know, treated not so well by directors, by, by co-stars who didn't want to be upstaged or didn't even want to be respectful to her in her sex symbol role that wasn't intellectual or that wasn't, you know, what real actors and actresses are. And so she was often treated poorly, something that, you know, for, as we talked earlier about a young girl who is used to being treated poorly could really undo you, could make it, it could be very difficult to stand up to the bully when you've been bullied earlier. I, I think she developed a lot of hatred for studio people, the men in the studio system, the directors and the um, executives high up, because she sensed, and it was true, they did have a low opinion of her because of her background and what she came from. And she had been, she was on the, there was a thing in those days, it was called a party girl. 
And there was these, the executives of the studios would have these like poker parties on Friday nights away from their families and everything. And they would have the starlets come in and empty ashtrays and get their drinks. And they were treated very disrespectfully. And one time um, somebody just reached over and grabbed Marilyn's gown and ripped the top off. And they were all laughing at her. And and she laughed with them because that's what was expecting of her. But you can only imagine the, the rage that was building up. I mean, she didn't really have a voice. She had no protection. So she had to put up with that kind of treatment to, to get to her, to, you know, to her goal. To basically be abused. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't respectful of her. This is the days of the casting couch and the expectation that you are an object and you do whatever the powerful man says, or you won't have a job. There was no other way in those days. Uh, you know, I, I think it was Claudette Colbert who said, you know, every almost every uh, star, every female star that came through had to go through the, the casting couch. It was the days. Let's not forget. I don't I don't like to make it as, you know, but it, a political talk or whatever. But it was the days before feminism and women in Hollywood were treated like commodities. It was horrible when you think about it. And Marilyn was, you know, was one of them. There weren't women in leadership roles who would be protecting you. That's the other thing that all all the leadership roles were men who protected each other. It was then in, in 1952 at about this time when she started developing insomnia, you know, difficulties with mood and somebody, well, was giving her barbiturates and amphetamines to manage her sleep difficulties, you know, barbiturates to go to sleep, amphetamines to wake up, which is a vicious cycle. And, and she started drinking alcohol. So Sometimes, you know, we, we, I mean, the old terms are referring to it as sort of self-medicating for mood issues. And it wasn't in those days difficult to get pills at all. You could just go to a studio doctor and they would prescribe you, you know, something to sleep, something to pep you up. I mean, so many of them in those days, Judy Garland, I mean, a lot of them got addicted to pills because it's like, you know, it it, it was also like the, the, the film studios in those days, it was a grindhouse of like, you have to get up in the morning, you have to work a full day, you have to sleep at night, look good for the cameras and, and be peppy and, and do the whole thing all over again. It was, there was costume fittings and there was tests and there was, there was all, uh, photo sessions. And it was, a, it was, a, it was a really full day. And somebody like Marilyn, who, you know, now the pressure's on her to, to deliver. So she did self-medicate. Of course, what, you know, what's sad about once someone starts using barbiturates or amphetamines is you over time, you need more of the same thing to have the same effect. That's, you know, you develop tolerance and that's when you develop a substance abuse problem. And that, you know, ultimately is what grew for Marilyn over the ensuing, you know, decade, really, until the end of her life. It's interesting also at this time, though, is when she starts to really be in films and, and try to be in films where she does some of the best films of her life you know, Diamonds are Girl's Best Friend, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And yes, they were roles that she had issue with in terms of wanting to play more serious roles and and these being still very kind of glammy roles. But they are the roles that got her noted as an important actress. I, I think that um, if, at first she was okay with though. Like, I don't think she, I think she was glad to do Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And it does show a, a lot of comedic skill. 
you know, then it was like how to marry a millionaire and there's no business like show business. It was after she had done several of them, she started thinking like, I, I could I do something else? I would like to do more. I want to, she was always interested in acting. She had studied acting and she wanted to, do, but it was like, if she was going to make money this way, the studio only wanted to make money. They weren't, you know, they were like, why can't you be happy? Anybody in, one of the things they said to her is like, people want to be Marilyn Monroe. You are Marilyn Monroe. Why can't you just be satisfied with that? Of course, they were at the same time they were saying that to her, they were making a lot of money. But because she'd signed a seven year contract, she wasn't making any more. She money. wasn't making any more money. She didn't even have a dressing room. She had a fight for a dressing room during Gentlemen for Blondes. I mean, Jane Russell, her co-star, had a dressing room to herself as a star should. Marilyn was in with the, you know, the supporting players and you know, a big. So she finally she went to them and she said, gentlemen, I am the blonde. Whatever else you think of me, I'm the blonde and I'm in gentlemen prefer blondes. And they finally gave her a dressing room. She, she said it, it came to that. I had to do that. They never offered it to me. She really had to fight for equal anything. And she did. She did ultimately do that. She was helped by she married Joe DiMaggio, which really let's say it increased her brand, you know, made her even more popular. He was so popular and she shot seven year itch, which, uh, with the, with the famous skirt scene that is iconic and, you know, but she was really noted for her acting in that film, which did change the game for her. Although unfortunately it also impacted her marriage. Uh, Joe DiMaggio was rethinking his, love of being married to a sex symbol. He really did love her. I think he's one of the few people that genuinely loved her, but he wanted her to be, again, he wanted her to be a housewife, like the first husband. Like he wanted her to give up the career, cook Italian dinners for her, have him, have children and sit in front of the TV set. And that wasn't for her. That wasn't for, well, that wasn't who he married in the first place. Also interesting is how she turned to Lee Strasberg and the actor's studio, and she really studied acting. She really wanted to be serious and learn method acting. And the one thing that was difficult about this is, so all of them were recommended to be in psychoanalysis, which I find so interesting as a psychoanalyst, in order to actually dig up and process and understand their past traumas and then be able to harness them and use them in the service of acting that they weren't, when they were acting, they weren't supposed to be acting. They were supposed to be reliving the difficult emotions that they had experienced from their past. That was method acting. Yeah, bringing, bringing up the feelings that relate to a scene that she was doing, dig in and bring it up and use it, use those emotions for reality to enhance the performance. Marilyn left after the seven-year age, she left Hollywood and moved to New York to study with Lee Strasberg and also to start her own film company because she, at this by this point, she had realized the studio wasn't going to give her the kinds of roles she wanted to play. And if she was going to broaden her career, she was going to have to do it herself. So she found a photographer who was very intelligent and resourceful and believed in her. One of these people that saw what she was and what she could possibly, you know, what she, her potential. His name was Milton Green, and she formed a, a company with him. And their intention was to make great films. Let's take a quick break here. We'll be back in a moment. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. 
AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit AT&T.com slash hypergig for details. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire amazing that she in some ways was a savvy businesswoman at a time when you know certainly no one taught her that and, no one and taught from her where anything. she came right no one taught her anything she really was self-taught she was really self-taught but the method acting you know it caused psychological turmoil for for many people she was damaged before but she was pretty wrecked after the psychoanalysis that year in new york digging down to all that and living with it all the time. Her dreams were horrible. She was always an insomniac. Now she never slept at all. And her pill taking and, and, and drinking increased enormously. It was difficult to now in the public eye and every move you made is examined under the microscope and then have all these childhood traumas and these insecurities and this damage and this, you know, we're living on a constant reel in your head. It was almost an impossible situation. So, you know, psychoanalysis is a treatment. It's not supposed to be used as an acting tool. And so it's one thing to take out all of this difficult material and examine it in the service of removing your guilt and removing your shame and ha- and getting rid of the conflicts and and accepting who you are and and building some some coping tools. It's an entirely other thing to say I'm going to examine this so I can take it out every day and relive it. So clearly that proved to be not good for it opened her, a really can of worms. Not in the stream. It mm. opened a can of worms, but it didn't give her anywhere to go with the can of worms other than just living it all the time. So that was really tragic and obviously made things worse for her. She and Joe DiMaggio get divorced. She's quickly involved with Arthur Miller. And 
it's interesting to me that she marries him, converts to Judaism <laughs> uh, for him, even as she's being so successful. This is when she, she wins a Golden Globe for Best Actress. I mean, she is really soaring, but still the men in her life, you know, have the ability to say, you know, be this for me, be, you know, I, I'm telling you do this and, and you do this. So that's fascinating. It does seem at that time that she wants to have a child and she had an ectopic pregnancy. She had a miscarriage. She had this terrible endometriosis, which may have been why she has to have surgery for that. But I think people don't realize or know that, you know, wanting to have a child at a certain stage and having recurrent difficulties like an ectopic pregnancy and a miscarriage, those are tragic losses. Those are really traumatic events in a woman's life if she's unable to conceive and has losses like that. And I don't think people think about that, Marilyn Monroe and that. that that's a big part. I mean, that was enormous failure for her and uh, a, a source of pain. Another thing with Arthur Miller, I just like, like, you know, bad-mouthing people, but for the purposes of this conversation, Arthur Miller was not a good match for her at all. He was ashamed of her. He married her because, well, one of the reasons he married her was because he was uh, under investigation from the House of um, Un-American Activities for, you know, communism in those days could destroy a career. And he announced his engagement to Marilyn Monroe from the steps of a hearing. She, he hadn't even asked her yet. But he didn't really um, have respect for her as a woman. I think he saw her as a muse, like someone, his career was kind of like in, in turmoil. He was looking for, you know, kind of like a midlife crisis. And here was this exciting, beautiful, interested, interesting woman. And he married her, but he was ashamed of her past, her past with men, her past with the, the casting couch. And how do we know this? I mean, I'm not pulling this out of thin air. First of all, he kept a diary and she, she read it. He left it out for her to read how disappointed he was in her. And then after she passed away, everything that he wrote with her as a character is very derogatory towards her. And he almost wrote almost every play had a Marilyn Monroe character in it, particularly after the fall. I mean, if, if ever you really want to know what Arthur Miller thought of Marilyn Monroe, it's in the play that he wrote directly after she died called After the Fall. And the character is not flattering it at all. So, I mean, she looked to these men as savers, as daddy, as my father. He's going to save me. He's going to take me away from all of this. Arthur Miller, he's so smart. I'm going to be respected now. I'm going to be protected now. And even, even like I'm going to get some of this intellectual prowess for myself, you know, that desire. She was always, she loved poetry. She liked reading. She wanted to acquire knowledge and acquiring a knowledgeable man is, a, is another way of doing that. Then to have that knowledgeable man actually basically say, you know, you can't have it because you're, you're too unintelligent and embarrassing. And to make it known to her is in that cruel way um, is an abuse of sorts. Oh, sure. It was, it wasn't a happy marriage for her. I think that they both, you know, she wasn't an easy person either. Let's put it, I can't put it all the blame on Arthur Miller. I mean, but she, she was difficult too with her mood swings and her demanding, you know, un conditional love every moment. You have to show me you love me. You have to, it, it, it was a, probably for him a very, very difficult thing. So it, it just wasn't a, a good match. And Marilyn's career was never the same after that. She, she didn't work as much, that's for sure. Uh, you know, after their marriage, she, it, everything became more difficult. Every, it, partially because of him, partially because of her fame now was completely out of her control. 
it was an impossible thing to live up to. It wasn't even a person. It was this omnipresent commodity, you know, thing to live up to. It's completely out of her control, and so it was. It the marriage wasn't good for them. After the divorce, I mean, her her health takes a turn for the worse. I think it's important for people to understand that depression and physical health, mental health and physical health are intimately connected, right? The mind-body connection. And she had gallstones. She had surgery, as I said, for this endometriosis. She was not feeling well. She was taking a lot of substances and using them to try to probably manage her moods, certainly manage her sleep. But even though she was in treatment with Ralph Greenson, she certainly had a, a, a psychiatrist and a therapist. And I think it's important that people also understand sometimes, you know, when psychiatric illness becomes severe, certainly if substance abuse is involved, having a, a treating doctor may not solve the problem. You know, someone has to be willing to, to stop substances and to be able to really treat a mood disorder. There's no evidence that I'm aware of that she really at any point presented like her mother, that she really looked like she had schizophrenia or paranoid delusions. Directly after her divorce from Arthur Miller, they had made a film. He wrote it for her, and it was a very taxing film. It was made in the desert. It took a long time. At this point, she was occasionally suicidal. She had her, during the making of that film, she was put in a hospital because she was uh, too addicted to film. You know, her eyes would not focus uh, and she overdosed and had her stomach pumped. She made she made a few a few suicide attempts with. Overdoses. She did. Arthur Miller once pulled her in from the ledge of their apartment high up above Manhattan. Uh, she was standing on the ledge and he pulled her in. She was suicidal at times and she had a fascination, almost a love affair with death. But she was institutionalized. When she came back from that making that film and started proceedings for divorce from Martha Miller, she was seeing her doctor daily. This wasn't Greenson. He was in L.A. She was in New York, and it was Dr. Marianne Chris, famous psychoanalyst, thought that she might kill herself. She was so down, and she was so depressed. And, and she, she, was, was, she was hospitalized at Payne Whitney near Presbyterian Hospital, which is actually my hospital where I train and where I'm on the faculty. But sadly, she certainly wrote about her experience there being a horrible one. She was um, uh, uh, straightjacketed. Which must have been so traumatic having watched that happen to her mother, who never came out of the hospital, really. It was so traumatic for her. She was put on the floor for the dangerously insane. She was, before they straightjacketed her, she said, well, if they're going to think I'm a nut, I'm going to act like a nut. And she, her door of her room had a little window and she started, she had, there was a chair in the room and she started throwing it against the window and throwing it against the window and it wouldn't break, but it like shards started to come off and she held one and she waited for someone to come in and she threatened that she was going to damage herself. And that's when they pulmoned her and, you know, they, they wrestled with her and got her in a straitjacket and brought her to the next floor, which was really like for the off the wall people. And she said, when she was talking about it later, the orderlies and the nurses and all, they would come in and look at her. And she told one of her friends that they touched her. So for her, it was a really, really horrible situation. She wrote, she tried to get to um, her teacher, the, the, the Strasbourg's, Lee Strasberg and his wife, Paula, and she wrote a note, which exists, and we have it, about how horrible it was there. I think it starts off, they have me locked up with all these nutty people, and if you don't get me out of here, I'll end up a nut. She, she must have had a terrible fear at that point that she was her mother, 
that she was, you know, that that this had happened to her. That was her biggest fear. And now she's in an institution. She's straightjacketed. She's they're not listening to her. They weren't they they she was trying to explain express that she was sane and she was coherent and they just they wouldn't. She felt they weren't listening to her. They were obviously terrified that they had a giant starlet who was going to kill herself on their watch, that she's holding a piece of glass and saying she's going to cut herself. And it's certainly nothing about this hospitalization experience left her feeling that there was someone in her corner and she was being helped, unfortunately. Quite the opposite, quite the opposite. And so, you know, then she comes out having, and, you know, obviously people who make repeated suicide attempts are a really high risk for suicide. And her mood issue continues. The hospitalization really hasn't helped her. And in fact, if anything, it's left her with the idea that, you know, this safety net is not a safety net at all. And now she's divorced. She's the movie, The Misfits. I mean, it it sounds like it's going terribly. She's often not showing up. She's coming late. She can't remember lines. And it just sounds like a real downward spiral from there. She never made a film again after The Pain Whitney. She never finished a film. She started one, but she never completed it. It's interesting, too, that the only way she got out of the pain, Whitney, was she some a nurse took pity on her and let her make a phone call, and she called Joe DiMaggio. And he flew in, and he went to the front desk and said, if you don't let my wife out of here, I'll take this hospital apart brick by brick. And, you know, you have a distraught Joe DiMaggio standing at the front. They released her the next day, but he was, and they weren't married. But So he rescued her from that. But the year and a half that remained to her, it was the darkest period of her life. So she was depressed a good deal of that time. She Most of it, if not all of it, she was seeing a psychiatrist every single day. And what was playing in with all, you know, uh, the marriage that didn't work, not being able to have children, all of her foundation of her career was built on being beautiful. Now she was 35 years old. You know, you, you say that's a baby. I say that's a baby. But in 1961, 1962, for a sex symbol, and they started printing this in the columns and in the papers, she's over the hill. What's going to happen to her? You know, she's done. So that fear playing in with all the other problems that she has, now she's worrying about, I have all this love. Finally, everyone loves me. Everyone wants to know me. Everyone wants to meet me. Presidents, kings, you know, uh, poets, uh, the greatest people in the world want to know me. I'm going to lose that now? I have to give that up now? Well, not only that, but in all the wanting to know her, they want to know her, but they don't want to love and stay with her, right? So she, none of these marriages have worked out. She's not been able to have a baby from a biological clock perspective, right? That window is closing. And that must have been just completely frightening. I mean, because her biggest fear, which had happened to her in her whole growing up abandonment, right, becomes her reality, that she is alone and her her body and her age mean that, you know, her ability to not be alone, right, is 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 dwindling. And it must have been completely terrifying. And you mix that with the unfortunate reality that by this point, she is often taking pills and, you know, using substances and that she has made repeated attempts before. She is a person who knows how to make a serious and lethal attempt, not a gesture. And ultimately, it appears that 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 is exactly what happened. There was a lot of things going on in her life that summer that she died. A lot of it had to do with rejection. 
she was looking to men, but she always looked for her self-worth through the eyes of men. And she was involved that year, that last year, with Frank Sinatra, who was like the, the epitome of the entertainment world. And she had a flirtation. There's a big debate about what her relationship was with the Kennedys, President Kennedy. She made it into more than what it was. It was something. But it wasn't this big, romantic love affair with John F. Kennedy. It was a flirtation. It was a fling. It was a fling. But in her eyes, it was a well, there's a difference. Was it a flirtation as in they talked in rooms and were flirtatious to each other? They were that. Or- but then they we know of at least one. I, I most there's one accepted undisputed time when they spent a couple of days together in Palm Springs at Bing Crosby's ranch. So that that were at least once. I think that there was maybe up to three more times. But then when he was warned by several people that he could no longer be involved with this, it was too dangerous. She was too famous. He had to distance himself. And I think that Bobby stepped in to be like a buffer for that, for the rejection. But he, in my opinion, really did fall under her spell, as men had before. And theirs became a little bit more intense. But again, he had no intention of leaving his family and being with her or anything, but they were involved. And in her eyes, in this vulnerable, fragile, dark time, here's my savior. This wonderful, brilliant, powerful man wants me. The studio may not want me. She kept getting involved in seeing these potential rescues or even, let's say, an accruing of power for herself by getting the powerful man. But at the end, they each used her for a while. That was sort of what, right? Nobody left any wives or wanted to be with her in a permanent way. On that last night, she was expecting to see Bobby at the Peter Lawford Beach House. And he canceled. He was with his family in San Francisco. And there were other things. There was a lot of contributing factors, but she was fired from her film. She was 36 years old. On the newsstands at the time of her death, they were saying... Marilyn Monroe desperate poses nude because she had done a little nude interlude in her swimming in in her film that she got fired from for not showing up because she couldn't face the cameras anymore. So she was in this really dark place. What happened that night? Now, we know her doctor, her, her medical doctor, she was seeing her medical doctor and her psychiatrist every day. Her medical doctor has said she was bipolar and the two doctors had this deal that they weren't going to prescribe her any pills without conferring with each other. But she lied to the medical doctor and said that my psychiatrist says, it's okay, you can prescribe me 25 Nembutals. He did prescribe it and he forgot to tell the psychiatrist that she had them. So that day, that last day, that Saturday, she was so distraught, the psychiatrist went to see her. And he talked to her and he said she was very depressed and he had a dinner party. So he left and he didn't see any Nembutal on her night table. And that's the that's the dose that killed her. So it was it was the dose that the medical doctor had prescribed her ostensibly for sleep for sleep. I think that would happen that night. I think she did intend to kill herself. And then. When she started to go under, she changed her mind and she started calling people to help her, to come and rescue her. 
And uh, there's a famous phone call that she called Peter Lawford and said, say goodbye to the president and say goodbye to Bobby Kennedy and say goodbye to yourself because you're a nice guy. And that set his alarm off. And he started calling her. Now the phone was off the hook because she started going under. He never went into he should have at least called an ambulance or something to go. But I think that she went under before she could get the help that she was trying to get. But that being said, I, in my opinion, if she was rescued that night, as she had been in the past, the next month or two months later or the following year, she would have eventually succeeded. Well, there had been a, a number of attempts and, and certainly things did not seem to be improving for her psychologically or psychiatrically speaking. The question of bipolar disorder is, is difficult to know in the sense that there's no evidence that she was treated for bipolar disorder. You, you wouldn't just give Nembutal to somebody with bipolar disorder, even in those days. I don't know how much they knew about it in 1962. Engelberg was her doctor and Dr. Engelberg, he was a, um, a famous you know, Hollywood, Beverly Hills doctor. And he didn't talk until like 30, 40 years after her death. He's passed now, but like he was an elderly man when he was talking about it. And he said, we, she was manic depressive. We don't call that anymore, but I, I like that term because it really describes what she was. I think what they were treating was her insomnia because that a lot of her problems stemmed from that. If you have bipolar disorder, not getting enough sleep can definitely precipitate an episode of either depression or hypomania or mania. So that on the one hand, that's understandable. On the other hand, even at that time, lithium or an attempt to stabilize the mood overall would be the primary goal. And in fact, there is an over-representation of people with bipolar disorder in the arts, of all the arts, because in fact, sadly, it confers this possibility of symptoms of depression alternating with uh, these periods of expansive mood and, and flight of ideas and so on. On the negative side, on the plus side, people with bipolar disorder are often unusually creative. Unusual original thinkers have this charisma and this incredible verbal ability that has been shown in studies that is, you know, beyond the typical person that does not have bipolar disorder. So there are particular strengths that often come along, particularly with bipolar disorder, that you see overrepresentation in the arts. So that wouldn't be surprising. On the one hand, it's just surprising that there wasn't sort of a treatment plan that would be more consistent with bipolar disorder. I tend to agree that she was bipolar from her behavior. Like she would go through like a period of being very upbeat and optimistic and productive. Like she would fly to Mexico. She bought a house and she would fly to Mexico and buy all the furnishings there and be very social. And, and then she would like collapse for two weeks. And it was the same thing, even when she was filming that last film that she never completed, like she'd go in for two days, work really well, be very into it and everything, and then not show up for another nine days. You know, it's interesting because of course, paranoid schizophrenia looks completely different. We understand today from bipolar disorder, but Sometimes people with schizoaffective disorder, meaning they have some mood component, ups and downs that look like bipolar, but they have more psychotic symptoms, can look like people with bipolar disorder who in their mania also become psychotic, have a break with reality. And so you just sort of wonder, genetically speaking, you know, given her mother did have this diagnosis, which could have been correct or incorrect in those early days, you know, that she was institutionalized for, you kind of wonder about that. Her psychiatrist did say that she had some 
paranoid episodes and things like she had an assistant who put a blonde streak in her hair and Marilyn felt that she was trying to take over her soul, you know, that kind of a thing. Like she was, it, it became like a lesbian thing that this woman was obsessed with me and she's trying to be me. And so things like she did have behavior like that too, that was becoming questionable in, in those last months. Unfortunately, even in, in manic episodes or in major depressive episodes, one can have psychotic moments psychotic thinking if it's severe enough. And so, you know, without someone who really has gone checklist by checklist through her history and through her symptoms, we, you know, today it'd be hard for us to say what was going on. And actually, if we did sit there and do that with her, then we wouldn't be able to say because of confidentiality, it wouldn't be appropriate to say what was really going on with her. So it's left open, but it's, it is certainly clear from both the symptoms that she suffered in her later years and her death, that she certainly struggled with some mental health issues. And there's certainly discussion of characterologic issues that were at that time referred to as sort of histrionic personality disorder, the, you know, over-sexualization, the over-expansive, look at me, look at me. I My life is full of high drama all the time. I gravitate toward high drama that used to be called, we don't even do this anymore, it used to be called histrionic personality disorder. And there have been wonderings about that as well. But to have someone who had so much trauma and difficulty in their early life, it would be surprising to not have a lot of the issues especially as you ascended to such a public position as Marilyn Monroe did. So in that respect, not really surprising and not really shocking, but certainly tragic. And of course, even though she felt that she was getting older, she died so young at 36, we have no idea what she would have gone on to do. Right. But you know, the one thing that I always like to look to is like how commendable it was that she did manage with all of her things that she achieved what she did achieve in a short time. Incredible. I mean, it, really a testament to an incredible talent. And as you pointed out, ambition and drive and ability to connect, to connect with an audience, to connect with others that propelled her into this incredible position. This gift of like, you know, as dark as she was on the inside, she gave off light. That's why people don't want to accept that she was so troubled because she makes them feel so good. Yes, that's actually that that's because often people shy away from people with depression because they feel sucked into it. They feel pulled into their depression and they they don't want to be with her, which may have been part of the difficulty in her more intimate life. You know, that if you really were in her inner circle, her lover, her, you know, her close friend, that you would have felt pulled into her depressive episodes. But for the public at large, right, in her performance, she could transmit the beauty and the light, as you said, and, and people felt pulled in. That wraps things up for this episode. Thank you to my guest, Charles Casillo. And if you want to know more information about Marilyn Monroe, you should check out his books, The Marilyn Diaries and Marilyn Monroe, The Private Life of a Public Icon. If you'd like to know more about the concepts in personology, my book is The Power of Different, The Link Between Disorder and Genius. For psychological and mental health advice, you might want to listen to my other podcast, How Can I Help? Follow me on Twitter at Dr. Gail Saltz. And until next time. 
Personology is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Dr. Gail Saltz and Tyler Klang. The associate producer is Lowell Berlanti. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.